Start selling on Shopify today. Go to shopify.com slash CNN for a $1 per month trial. Last week on the show, we told you how former President Donald Trump became the first American president ever to be charged with a crime. Well, on Tuesday, Trump traveled to Manhattan Criminal Court to appear before a judge. President Trump, will you come speak to us, President Trump? After being processed and fingerprinted, he walked right past CNN's Caitlin Collins and into the courtroom, where he pleaded not guilty to 34 felony counts of falsifying business records. And it's really worth underlining here what a historic moment this was. The moment where a former president of the United States became a criminal defendant. And outside the courthouse, there was a small group of demonstrators, some anti-Trump, some pro-Trump. So I decided to go down there and see it for myself. Where, where are you guys from? We're from Maryland. You came here just for this? Uh, to support Trump, yes. Before the indictment was unsealed, I met Gina Witcher and her son, who was holding a big Don't Tread on Me flag. And she echoed what we've heard from the former president and his allies, that this prosecution feels political. I mean, they've had four or five years to, like, indict him on anything they wanted. But as soon as he, you know, said, I'm going to run for president, now they're all coming out of the way. Is there anything that could sway you that it would be a fair trial if it were to go that far? It's not going to be a fair trial. <laughs> There's no way it's going to be a fair trial. I mean, just- Now that we've seen the indictment and the charges... It's not even just hardcore Trump supporters who are skeptical about this case and how it came together. My guest this week is CNN senior legal analyst Ellie Honig. We're going to walk through the charges, what they say, what they don't, and what happens next. From CNN, this is One Thing. I'm David Ryan. Ellie, you're a former prosecutor, and you've seen quite a few indictments in your day, I imagine. Indeed. (laughs) So I thought you'd be the perfect person to break this down for us in plain English. So let's start with the indictment itself. What's in it? Yeah, so David, let me just say first off, uh, I'm former colleagues with Alvin Bragg, who is the Manhattan DA. Now sure. we work together, we're friendly. So people should know that out front. But as you'll see, I do have some questions about some the merits thoughts. of this case. Yeah. This indictment is premised on the payment of hush money to Stormy Daniels in 2016. Of course, people will remember Donald Trump paid through Michael Cohen, really as an intermediary, $130,000 to keep Stormy Daniels quiet. And then Trump organization reimbursed Michael Cohen after that. Now, it is not a crime to pay hush money under federal law or state law. And by the way, we are under New York state law here. This is not the feds. This is New York state. So what would the crime be? First of all, think of it with sort of two layers or two levels. The lower level would be falsification of business records. That is a misdemeanor, uh, meaning no one's going to prison. The max for a, a misdemeanor is one year. The theory here is they re- the Trump organization or Donald Trump himself falsely booked those payments as attorney fees, as legal fees. Hmm. Now, in order to bump it up to the next level to get it to be what we call a class E felony, which is the lowest level of felony, there's A through E, A is the most serious, E is the least. Then you have to prove that the records were falsified in order to commit or conceal some second crime. And so one of the questions that I think the indictment fails to answer is, well, what's that second crime? 
Why did Donald Trump repeatedly make these false statements? The evidence will show that he did so to cover up crimes relating to the 2016 election. So there's two documents here. The indictment lays out the charges with almost no detail. But there's also a statement of facts. This is this 13-page document that's important because it gives an overarching view of the theory of the case, which is Donald Trump and people around him had this pattern, this longstanding practice of paying people with embarrassing stories to go away to protect them politically. This is catch and kill. Catch and kill. Less than two weeks before the presidential election, Michael Cohen wired $130,000 to Stormy Daniels' lawyer. That payment was to hide damaging information from the voting public. The statement of facts alleges that this is something that Donald Trump and his people did for him three times that are alleged in the statement of facts, although only one of them, the Stormy Daniels incident, is actually charged as a crime. I think the mm. other, the others relating to Karen McDougal, who also alleged an affair, and this unnamed doorman, uh, are designed to show more of a sort of overarching pattern. These are felony crimes in New York State, no matter who you are. We cannot and will not normalize serious criminal conduct. And it seems like their theory of this other crime, which is necessary to get it up to a felony, is either a violation of federal campaign law or state campaign law. But that's awkward legally and untested legally because we're in New York state. How can you charge a violation of federal campaign law? The presidential election is federal. Right. Um, and even Cy Vance, the former DA, said on our air on CNN earlier this week that it's never been charged this way. We don't know how it will come out legally. Hmm. The third theory that is sort of alluded to is some sort of tax fraud theory. But there's no evidence that the Trump organization deducted these payments as business expenses. So I'm not quite sure I understand that yet. And forget about whether I understand. What's what's really important here, the purpose of an indictment is to put the defendant on notice. Here's what you're charged with. Here's what you're defending. Here's what exactly you did wrong. Exactly. I mean, it's a, it's a bedrock principle of our justice system. So what's going to happen is the defense is going to make a motion to the judge. We need more specificity here. And, and I think they'll win. Right. To figure out precisely what the second crime would be. Um, so you alluded to this, but have we ever seen this kind of legal approach tried before? Yes and no. Sorry to give you a lawyerly answer there. Uh, what you're hearing from some people is, well, the Manhattan DA charges falsification of business records all the time, which is true, but in very different circumstances. I'm not, I'm not even referring to the fact that we're talking about a former president here. The classic and, and almost all of these cases involve some company or some person falsifies a, a record, uses it to go out and steal from somebody, get a loan from a bank they're not entitled to, uh, attract investors to rip off customers to steal money. Here, the thought is, well, they're trying to sort of trick the people, trick the election system. I actually think that will hold up as a matter of law. But the problem is trying to charge a violation of campaign law relating to a federal campaign, relating to a run for president. And I think the better legal argument there is, no, state prosecutors can charge state-level violations. For example, someone was running for state governor or mm. state assembly. But because it's for president of the United States, some see that as a little far-fetched. Yeah, as, as a, a, a an ill fit between the law here. And, and like I said, Cy Vance, who was the DA before this, said, well, yeah, I can't quite say it's ever been charged that way before. And, and the law, I think he said, is unknown or in flux. And that's a big, big risk to take when mm. you're charging anyone, never mind the former president. 
So during the arraignment, the judge warned both sides about inflammatory rhetoric. And then just hours after that, Trump went out and attacked Alvin Bragg and the judge, even mentioned the judge's family. So didn't quite seem like he got the message there. People have been talking about a gag order. Is that a possibility? It's a possibility, but a remote possibility. So let me just say, first of all, there is such thing as a gag order where a judge will order one or both parties to a case. You're not to speak about this case or you're not to speak about it publicly. The judge actually addressed this at the arraignment where the judge basically said, I'm not going to issue a gag order here against Donald Trump. And he even said something along the lines of, and I'm not particularly close. However, Mm. everyone needs to watch what they say. And there's really two reasons for that. One, it's an extreme remedy and people do have broad First Amendment rights to speak about their cases. And the other, the judge said, because you're running for president, he acknowledged this candidly, he said, you have a sort of extra right to political speech, which is our Mm -hmm. most protected, our sort of most constitutionally protected form of speech. And Trump's speech at Mar-a-Lago just hours later. And I never thought anything like this could happen in America. Never thought it could happen. Almost defied this judge to his face. It's almost as if Trump is saying either go ahead and make me. Now I have a Trump-hating judge with a Trump-hating wife and family. Or I don't care if you do issue a gag order. So the judge is going to have a tough decision to make there. So what are next steps here? Because Trump's lawyers have said that they're going to fight this, even try to toss the case out. Yeah, I'm sure they will. And by the way, we shouldn't sort of roll our eyes at Trump's lawyers saying that they're going to fight this case aggressively and vigorously. That's their job. To that end, the next step will be they will make motions, legal motions to the judge before anything goes to a jury saying a combination of things. They will ask the judge to throw out certain charges. They will ask the judge to reduce certain charges including on the basis that we discussed before. This is a state court. You can't say that the other crime here is a federal election violation. They also may ask the judge, they've signaled that they may ask the judge to change the venue to get out of Manhattan. Now, you you can imagine why Trump wants to get out of Manhattan. The 2020 election went 85% for Joe Biden, 12% for Donald Trump. The jury pool would certainly look one way. It would be a horrible jury pool for Donald Trump, almost as bad as you can imagine. Um, He wants to get to Staten Island, which went majority for Donald Trump. He has almost no chance of succeeding there. You have to basically be able to show that it would be utterly impossible to get a fair trial Mm. in the venue you're in. And by the way, the fact that someone voted against Donald Trump doesn't mean the person wouldn't be a fair juror. He also seems like he's trying to get the judge removed from this case by arguing there's some sort of conflict, like we said before. I don't think that's likely to happen. But here's another argument they may make. This judge, Judge Marchand, is the same judge who presided over the trial of the Trump organization and the Mm. Alan Weisselberg case, which was last year. And the reason this judge has the current case is not just a pure coincidence. There's 50 some judges on this court. It's because prosecutors designated it as what we call a related case, meaning they said, okay, this new case, state versus Donald Trump, is related to the Trump org and the Alan Weisselberg case. And The defense lawyers have said and have indicated they're going to argue that's inappropriate. This case should go into the wheel, as we call it, and be randomly assigned. Should be completely separate. Yeah, they shouldn't get to basically say, we kind of like that judge, so it's related. Uh, I will tell you from my own experience, and anyone who's been a prosecutor will tell you, we prosecutors do do this sometimes. Um, You will go, you will maybe indict one person on a multi-defendant case and say, hmm, do we like that judge? If so, let's relate it. And if not, let's go back into the random assignment system. Interesting. So last week, our colleague Paula Reed sat in the chair you're sitting in now and said, the big question is, why is Alvin Bragg 
bringing this case now after all these years? Do we know the answer to that question now after the indictment, after Bragg came out and spoke? No. And I completely agree with Paula that that's an important question. This case is six and a half years old, the conduct here, which is almost inexplicable. I mean, they're they're going to be okay, I think, the prosecutors in terms of statute of limitations. But there's a bigger question when we get to just the fairness of this all. What's with all the time delay? People who've been sort of speaking on behalf of the DA's office have offered up various and I think not compelling explanations. One, they say, well, the Southern District of New York, the feds across the street where I used to work, where Alvin Bragg used to work, where we worked together, um, they asked us to stand down while they were investigating. That's true, but that only covers a period of 2018 and 19. In 2019, Hmm. the feds said publicly, we're done. We're closing our case out. So that doesn't explain any delay since then. And the other explanation is, well, they found new evidence. And you've seen some surrogates of the DA's office sort of scratching and clawing to say, well, we found this, but they're really not able to point to much. And even if they did find new evidence, it would have to be game-changing evidence. You can't just say, well, we found this one new detail. Cy Vance, the former DA uh, who had this case for over a year and didn't charge it, was asked on our air. Is there anything in this indictment as you go through it that you did not expect to see? Uh, I think the indictment in one sense was as predicted. And his first answer when he was first asked was, no, he sort of reluctantly said, I don't. And then he was on again a couple hours later and he clearly had sort of backtracked a bit. I think there are factual allegations that at least myself personally, I cannot recall that we were aware of. I think. For and he pointed to one fact and he said, I'm not sure. I don't know if I had that, but I might not have. But just being able to point to one new fact, I mean, I'm sure they could find a new fact tomorrow if they had to. That to me does not justify six and a half years of time lapse here. Um, I don't think it will be a legal problem for them, but I think it's a legitimate question about the overall perceived motives and legitimacy of this prosecution. Certainly gives them political ammo anyway. Yes. yes. Uh, Ellie, thanks for the insights. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me, Dave. One Thing is a production of CNN Audio. This episode was produced by Paolo Ortiz and me, David Rind. Matt Dempsey is our production manager. Fez Jamil is our senior producer. Greg Peppers is our supervising producer. And Steve Liktai is the executive producer of CNN Audio. Thanks for listening. Be sure to follow this show wherever you listen so it pops up in your feed every week. We'll be back next Sunday. Talk to you then.